Mustard seeds, weeds and wheat, bread and fish, drunken banquets. It's Food Week on The Backdrop. Here we are again on The Backdrop. Curtis here as usual. Thanks for joining me as we continue our look at the odds and ends of Matthew. You may have thought that there wasn't anything else to say about a single chapter of a book that we spent three weeks of sermons on, but if you did think that, well, you must be new here. Welcome! There's lots more to say about chapters 13 and 14, and we're going to get into all of that on this episode. And we're going to start with a few words about parables in general and what Jesus was doing in teaching with them. It's kind of funny to read scholars about parables because you'll find some that argue that Jesus uses parables as methods of hiding meaning, speaking in code and confusing images. And then other scholars who argue that Jesus uses parables as kind of down-home wisdom that's accessible to the regular folks. In other words, as methods of aiding in understanding. I think the truth is actually both. And you see this in how Jesus explains himself in the verses in the middle of the parable of the sower. Jesus speaks in parables so that those with ears will hear and those without ears to hear won't. Those who trust in God, who are willing to listen and have insight given to them by God, they will gain more insight. Those who don't, won't understand what Jesus is even talking about. In this sense, speaking in parables is an act of judgment in and of itself. Those who have walked away from God will find that one of the consequences is that it is harder for them to hear what God is saying. Those who have drawn close to God will be drawn even closer. This is the way to understand Jesus' words that to those who have, more will be given, and to those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Jesus isn't talking about money or possessions, but understanding, intimacy with God, insight. And so those who are close to Jesus gain insight into the meaning of him and the kingdom, while the Pharisees and the Romans... If they hear, they won't know what Jesus is saying. And this is important because if they did know what Jesus was saying, they wouldn't be terribly happy about it. Jesus in Matthew and Mark especially is often pictured as trying to keep secret the news that he is the Messiah, to keep a lid on the explosive message that he is teaching. At least in part, this is to ensure that he isn't arrested and killed too soon, that the movement of the kingdom doesn't get snuffed out before it can get started. The parables, then, are accessible imagery for the people to whom he is speaking. But they also force thinking, pondering their meaning, working to understand what God is up to. Work the disciples are willing to do, but their enemies are not, for now. One other interesting thing about the parables Jesus tells, as opposed to the parables or proverbs or sayings that other teachers of the day were using, Usually, parables like these were told to support the status quo, to reassure the hearers. But Jesus's are intended to challenge the status quo and to unsettle the hearers. It's much the same as what we saw in Jeremiah, actually. God is often, if not always, you could argue, opposed to the status quo and on the side of revolutionary unsettling change. Not any old change for change's sake, but change that undermines the comfort of those who have managed to make the status quo work for them by oppressing their brothers and sisters. Moving on now to the parable of the wheat and the weeds, one quick observation. This parable is not about the church, as has sometimes been thought. Jesus explicitly says that the field 
is the world. This is, as I said in my sermon on it, a parable about why bad things happen in a world in which the kingdom of God was supposed to have come. It is not about the problem of nominal Christians. Those are related topics, of course, but the world is the main focus here. Some have used Jesus's words that at the harvest, the weeds will be taken out of the kingdom to argue that the field is the kingdom, is the church. But part of the point Jesus is making about the kingdom is that it is going to expand to the point that it takes over the whole of creation, all of the world, as God's plan has been from the beginning. And so the weeds are taken out of the kingdom because by the harvest time, the whole field, the whole of the kingdom will have filled the earth. Which brings us to the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, where the kingdom starts small and expands throughout the whole. These are helpful parables to understand a bit of how parables work. They are not one-to-one analogies, and they aren't perfect analogies. So actually, going back to the parable of the weeds and the wheat, the image breaks down when we think about it too hard. We could take the imagery too far, in other words, and think that Jesus is saying that some people are forever and always weeds, while others are forever and always wheat. No changing, because that's how actual weeds and wheat work. This is a mistake that Calvinists make in reading this sort of parable. But Jesus is actually inviting us to change from weeds to wheat, and so the analogy breaks down. And this is okay. It's how figurative language works. We compare two things that are alike in some important ways, even if they might be unlike in other ways. And we ignore the unlike parts because the likeness illuminates something important for us. And so with the mustard seed and the leaven, the parable is the whole situation, not one part. And this is an important insight into how parables work. It's not that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Instead, the kingdom is like a mustard seed which someone takes and sows in a field and it grows from a small seed into a large tree. That's the comparison. Similarly, the kingdom is not like leaven. The kingdom is like leaven which a woman takes and kneads into a huge amount of dough and it spreads throughout the whole. It's the whole image that is the picture of the kingdom. And sometimes that doesn't make a huge difference in our interpretation. Other times, it actually really does. One interesting thing about these two parables is that both leaven and mustard are usually seen in a negative light in the culture of the day. Leaven was seen as impurity, since unleavened bread holds such a special status for the Jewish people. Mustard plants were weeds that would, if unchecked, take over the whole garden. In fact, part of the kind of folk wisdom of the day was the advice to never plant a mustard seed in a garden which is part of the point in the mustard seed parable. It starts small, this kingdom, but the inevitable end is that it will overtake the whole earth. It's possible that these connotations, these kind of evil or impure connotations, might be part of what Jesus is getting at by using these images. It might be intentional. These things that are despised, that are seen as polluting, they're actually the means of God's kingdom coming in its fullness. It could be akin to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, that God uses the lowly and despised things of the world to accomplish God's purposes. Or those connotations might be, again, where the analogy breaks down and we shouldn't push things too far. A couple other quick thoughts from this chapter. It would not have been at all uncommon for people to bury valuables in their land in these days, pre-banks. So the parable where the man finds a treasure in a field would not be a 
wholly unheard of situation. And there would have been nothing untoward or deceptive for the person who bought the field to own the treasure. If you own the land, you own what is in it. He isn't breaking any laws or doing something unethical here. And then the parable at the end with the fish being sorted and thrown out. There were some fish in the Sea of Galilee that were clean and others that were unclean. And the fishermen of the time used, like many do today, large nets that would have caught all types together. So it was normal and necessary for fishermen to throw out the unclean, and therefore worthless to try and sell, fish. And speaking of worthless, we move on to Herod in chapter 14. A Herod has shown up in Matthew before, you may remember, killing babies in the opening chapters. That Herod was actually this Herod's father. The first Herod is sometimes known as Herod the Great. He was given, through some skillful political maneuvering, control of a large section of the eastern parts of the Roman Empire as a sort of governor under the authority of the empire. He was given uh, the title king, but he was still subject to the emperor in Rome. When Herod died, that territory was actually divided up into four parts. And this Herod, also called Herod Antipas, was most accurately called a tetrarch, which literally means something like ruler over a fourth part. Herod Antipas's fourth included the region of Galilee, where Jesus is operating right now. Herod and his brother Archelaus, who controlled another of the fourths of their father's land, were thoroughly Roman culturally and had a reputation for throwing drunken parties like the one in this chapter. Another of their brothers, a Philip, shows up a little later in the gospel as well. The Herodias in this story was originally the wife of Herod's brother, and there's some evidence that the adulterous remarriage that John criticized, and which got him thrown in prison, was her idea, and that Herod and Tippus went along with her idea to marry her. Similarly, later on, Herod will travel to Rome at Herodias's urging, seeking to have his title upgraded to king to match his father's. The Roman emperor at the time, however, was not impressed with this show of ambition and instead exiled Herod to Gaul, where he died. A couple notes about the story here. One, this is the only story of any real length in Matthew that doesn't have Jesus in it. This is, after all, a biography of Jesus. It doesn't make much sense to have stories that aren't illuminating him and his character, which makes some scholars reason that this story actually is about Jesus, in a sense, because the fate of John is a preview of what is to come for Jesus. There are many parallels in this story to what happens to Jesus, who is also killed by the Romans, by a reluctant Pontius Pilate. One difference is the method of execution. Crucifixion was used by the Romans to make an example out of someone, usually someone who had dared challenge the power of Rome. Crucifixions were public events meant to humiliate the victim and to show all who passed by what happens to someone who crosses the great empire. Beheadings, in contrast, were thought to be the most painless, dignified way to be executed. They were the method usually used for Roman citizens. They were usually done privately. This is the method Herod uses for John, in contrast to what will happen later with Jesus. One of the striking things about this story is how wishy-washy Herod is. He arrests John because his wife tells him to. He wants to kill John because John is seriously causing problems for Herod, but is afraid to do so because what will the people think? He doesn't want to execute John at the party, but then he had made a promise and he can't go back on that promise because then what will the guests think? It's not a very flattering portrait of this supposedly powerful man, to say the least. 
Stanley Hauerwas has a really interesting quote about this in his commentary. He sees Herod's fear as being an example of a regular occurrence amongst the so-called powerful. The powerful lack the power to be powerful, Hauerwas says. And so they lead lives of destructive desperation. The powerful lack the power to be powerful. And so they lead lives of destructive desperation. We think of the powerful as being, well, powerful, but in fact, they are constantly afraid of their power disappearing. The powerful know they aren't as powerful as they like to seem to be. And so they lash out in their fear, they oppress, they destroy, they hurt. And then we get the contrasting story of a man who truly is powerful, Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to fear that his power is going to be taken away. And so he lives a life of abundant generosity instead of destructive desperation. He is secure in his trust in the God of Israel. In fact, one of the interesting things about the feeding of the 5,000 is that there are 12 baskets left over after the feast. If it was the 12 disciples who were distributing the food, as it seems to indicate, this means that they distributed all their food from their baskets, and each of their baskets was full at the end. They had given abundantly, generously, and found at the end that it hadn't depleted what they had one bit. What a contrast to how the Herods of the world look at what they have. A couple quick notes on this passage. The story tells us the people were sitting on the grass. Well, much like the hillsides of Southern California, if there's grass, then it's either late winter or early spring. In other words, when the stores of grain from the previous year's harvest would be at their lowest before the next year's harvest has begun. Which means that in a deserted place, with only small villages around, there's a very real possibility that there wasn't even enough food anywhere nearby to feed the people in the story if they'd wanted to. Remember, at the time, even the major city of Capernaum had only around 2,000 residents. And this is a story about 10,000 people or more out in the middle of nowhere. Even if the surrounding villagers had wanted to be generous, they probably did not even have enough food to take care of the needs without Jesus's miracle. In this story, it's not clear if the people even know what has happened, that a miracle has occurred. It's possible they just think the disciples had some large store of food to draw from. Some have theorized that the five loaves and two fish represent the Old Testament scriptures, the five books of the Torah, and then the two major sections of the Jewish scriptures, law and prophets, which would make this miracle some sort of reference back to Jesus's words to Satan that people survive on not just food, but on the word of God. Or maybe they just actually had five loaves and two fish, and this is just how the story went without any deeper meaning. Could be either one. In any event, this is one of many stories in the Bible where God takes the normal, the everyday, and transforms it into something powerful and extraordinary. It seems this is something that God likes to do. And then finally, we get to the story of Jesus walking on water. It might seem at first a bit strange that the disciples would first think that Jesus is a ghost, although really what else would you think in their situation out in the middle of a lake? But it was a common belief at the time that the sea was a chaotic, dangerous place, a place where evil spirits live. And so it makes a little more sense in that light. This story does not really have any parallel in Jewish or Roman mythology. When the gods in Roman mythology are seen traveling across the waves, it's to highlight their speed, not their power. They were seen kind of like that lizard that can run on water. It wasn't 
any old god who could travel over the waves. Only the really super fast ones could. And there was no walking slowly on water like Jesus is doing here. For Jews, likewise, it is only Yahweh who can walk on water. And we see that in Job chapter 9, verse 8, Psalm 77, verse 19, or Habakkuk 3, 15. So this would certainly be a clue for the disciples about who exactly this Jesus person was, since he is doing something that only the God of Israel can do. And then finally, a word on the doubts of Peter. The word for doubt that's used here is only used elsewhere in the New Testament one other time, in the post-resurrection story in Matthew. It literally means being of divided mind, Peter's faith and fear mixing together. Going back to Stanley Hauerwas again, uh, he had some interesting thoughts on Peter's escapade as well. He says of Peter's fear, fear dominates our lives when we think our task is to survive death or save the church. But our task isn't to survive. It's to be faithful. Fear dominates our lives when we think our task is to survive death or save the church. But our task is not to survive. It's to be faithful. I think that's a good note to end on. Thanks for joining me for the backdrop this week. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. Next time, we'll be looking at chapters 15 to 17 of Matthew, and I hope you will join me for that as well. Until then, bye. Bye.